Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you look at Philippians 3, and you can see the theme of our text right in the first verse. Rejoice in the Lord. And the apostle goes on to say it's no trouble to write the same things to the churches. It was safe for them. It really is the foundational Christian message that even a child can remember. Maybe the children can think, do you know that, that song, Rejoice in the Lord Always? And again, I say rejoice. You know that, that song? That's a fundamental teaching of the church. It's good to know that song and sing it. Rejoice in the Lord is an exclusive statement. Those who glory in Christ, glory in the fact that he has done everything in order to obtain salvation, resurrection from the dead, and eternal life. He's done it for those who believe in him. On the flip side, the Holy Spirit shows us that if we then act as if our personal piety and our choices contribute anything to our salvation, that's actually a rejection of that little song, Rejoice in the Lord, always. It's a rejection of Christ as he is revealed in scriptures. We are not rejoicing in the Lord, who is a complete Savior, if we are just thanking Jesus for being there to help us in our personal piety. As we call on him once in a while, Lord Jesus, help me to do this, thinking that it's necessary to get up and be more pleasing to God, to win his favor. To rejoice in the Lord means to confess that our works are as valuable for gaining salvation as rubbish is. And rubbish or garbage isn't useful at all. Rejoice in the Lord is to confess that although we cannot contribute a single thing, we recognize that, we believe that Jesus Christ has done everything. We have been granted, given the resurrection from the dead and eternal life in him. Rejoice in the Lord means although we do not always feel happy, especially when we look at our own situations, we can always rejoice, we can always be glad in the surpassing value of Christ Jesus' work for us. You see, the only sin that can prevent us from entering eternal glory is the sin of persistently rejecting the Holy Spirit, rejecting Jesus Christ all the way to the day of our death. The only work that will guarantee our entrance into the glory of heaven is the act of removing our trust in rubbish here on the earth and entrusting ourselves to Jesus Christ. I preach you the gospel of Jesus Christ under this theme, rubbish can't give eternal life, only Christ can. 
So rejoicing in the Lord, we want to let go of our own achievements and we want to gain the righteousness of Christ. If you look at your text, you see some very strong words in verse 2. The Apostle Paul uses strong words. He talks about dogs, evildoers, and mutilators. And he's warning God's people about those who put their confidence in the flesh. You can see that at the very end of verse 3, also verse 4. When you study these verses, you can see that Paul is speaking here about Judaizers. They were people who wanted to require circumcision as a condition for salvation to all converts to Christianity. The Judaizers believed that many Old Testament signs of piety and thanksgiving, such as circumcision or special dietary restrictions, what they would eat, celebration of the feast. They said those things need to be maintained in the churches even after Christ Jesus has fulfilled the sin offerings. They recognized that Christ had done a lot. He fulfilled the sin offerings. They wanted to continue to, to define what piety looked like according to the Old Testament laws. However, as Paul makes clear in his other letters also, you can see Galatians, the Judaizers were wrong to demand these outward signs of Old Testament piety from all people as a condition of salvation. The problem was not that the Judaizers wanted to live pious lives. That's good. They wanted to, to live a pious life. The problem was not that they wanted to keep themselves distinct from the world. Again, that's, that's good to look different than the world. But the problem was that they considered these outward signs of piety to be necessary for anyone who wanted eternal life. They were adding these things as further requirements to the Christian faith. Conditions that we human beings needed to fulfill on earth. They were, they were saying that Christ Jesus was not enough, that he was not a complete savior. And so that idea made them enemies of the cross of Christ. That's what Paul says in verse 18 of the same chapter. And the Holy Spirit first calls people who deny the completeness of Christ's work now you can understand the strong language. He calls them dogs and evildoers. In the Old Testament, dogs were known to be unclean. So Paul was saying that, that such people are still in their uncleanness because they rejected Jesus Christ. And it's probable that Paul is actually even referring to Psalm 22, verse 16. If you look at that psalm, you will see right there the mention of dogs and evildoers, one beside the other, looking on the one that they had pierced. That's the psalm that talks about Jesus in his crucifixion when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They were encircling the cross of Jesus Christ. Dogs and evildoers is a reference to those who are enemies of the work of Jesus Christ. 
And the Holy Spirit then uses the word cutter or mutilator of the flesh to describe these Judaizers who were enemies of the cross. And with this language, he made it clear that the cultural religious practice of circumcising baby boys on the eighth day had become meaningless and superficial so that it was more to be compared with the cutting of the prophets of Baal in the time of Elijah than the circumcision that God had required of his covenant people in the Old Testament. It would be comparable to writing to people like us who baptize their infants, but, the, but telling them that they were baptizing infants out of custom. It would be like writing to people who baptize infants out of custom or in their superstitious belief that somehow dumping water on babies can save them and then calling them water sprinklers or baby drowners. That's what he was saying. You're cutters. You're not, that's not circumcision. You guys are water sprinklers. That's not what baptism is about as you read about it in Scripture. And the problem was that people were putting their trust in the outward, external actions. They were putting their trust, their confidence in following the external rules and practices of the Jewish or Christian faith without worrying about what was in their hearts. And then Paul says we need to look out. The word can be beware. Beware of them. Beware of that false sense of security. Such people, says Paul, are workers, but since their works resulted in pride, and a denial of the complete work of Christ, he says they're evil workers, evil doers. And three times Paul says, beware, look out. When something is said three times, that's very strong warning. Although it appeals to our proud human nature to believe that we can contribute something to our own salvation, it's such a nice feeling to see that good stuff in our own lives. It, it even makes us, us feel better. Paul says that's not the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And then he lists his own credentials to make his point. We, we read that together. He says if anyone is able to put their confidence in the flesh, it's me. If godliness was marked by being a purebred Jew, no one could surpass the Benjamite Israelite who was circumcised on the eighth day and brought up to speak the, the pure Hebrew language, not some mixture of different languages. Verse 5. And it continues, if piety was indicated by seeking to earn salvation through obedience to the law, while the blameless Paul could not only claim righteousness for himself, but also zeal. He was so ze zealous, he was persecuting everyone who followed the way of Christ. We read about that also in Galatians 1. Here was a committed, active man who was always thinking about his life before the Lord, doing everything according to the commands with his Bible open, able to compare 
the law to himself and still smile. If salvation depended on a person's works and personal righteousness, then Paul would be the first person in the line up to heaven. Well, we thank the Lord God Almighty that he did not leave the church of Jesus Christ in this dangerous ignorance and pride. When Jesus Christ in heaven took hold of Paul on his journey to Damascus and called him to repentance, if you'd like to read about that, you can read Acts 9. At that time, the apostle learned that he had been completely wrong about what true piety looks like. You can see he was crushed. He was seeing the, the, the bright light in his journey. He was exposed. He learned that in the Christian church, the true sign of piety that pleases God is removing our trust in our own achievements. It's, it's losing the pride and being thirsty for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Meeting Christ. The apostle could see that although he might have been in the front of a lineup for something, he was in a lineup for the wrong thing. And so he had to conclude whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for Christ. And, and you, you know what that's like. When you're the best at something, or maybe when you're at school, you're in the front of the lineup, and you're all excited because you're in the front, and, and, and you're right there, and then somebody says, wrong lineup. You need to be over here. And you go, but why can't I just stay here? Why can't this be good enough? I, I'm, I'm the best at this. And Paul said, it's, I saw it was all loss. And the word loss has the sense of disadvantage. And the sense of being in the front of the wrong lineup causes you to be proud, so proud that you even start to resist the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not neutral. It's harmful to new life in Jesus Christ. And although Paul had, had more reasons to be proud than, than anyone else. He, he was probably very similar to Nicodemus that our Lord Jesus talked to, this, this very important statesman who had everything going for him according to the law. So much he had to give up more than anyone else. He says that it's all loss. Look at verse 8. He says it very clearly. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. One man's treasure is another man's garbage, rubbish. Now, rubbish is a very strong word. And although it's quite clear that rejoice in the Lord is, is really the theme of this chapter, I, I put rubbish right into the theme of this sermon so we won't forget. We won't forget that garbage sermon, the rubbish sermon. Because it shows how strongly 
The Holy Spirit speaks against the value of our human achievements, and we need to constantly be reminded of that. The word rubbish could be translated as garbage, junk, excrement, manure, waste. If you look in the garbage can of the Christian church and the kingdom of heaven, you will see that garbage can just stuffed full with things that aren't useful to the Christian anymore. Stuffed full of things that people trusted in their hope to get to heaven. Circumcision as an outward act of piety. Israelite heritage and race. Righteousness according to the law. Big monetary money donations. Activism in the church community. All those things that people thought, well, if I want to get eternal life, what do I need to do? How about this? How about I try this? Maybe I'll give more money. Maybe I'll work harder. It's all in the garbage can in the kingdom of God. All those things that people do and say that they tend to think will bring them, guarantee them, bring them to the front of the line, carry them through the gates of heaven. Paul says, the Holy Spirit says, they are rubbish and waste to those who know Jesus Christ. When you depend on them, you're saying that Jesus Christ is not enough. You are saying that he actually needs you to help him carry you into heaven. Now the Holy Spirit's warning is not just directed to the congregation in Philippi, the Christians there. Since Paul mentions that everything is lost, it is clear that he is not just talking about the practices of the Judaizers. Maybe you felt a little sigh of relief. Good, he's talking about Judaizers. I don't even know what that, that word means. It's got nothing to do with me. But then you keep reading and you see that, that Paul is speaking more broadly about anybody anywhere who puts their confidence in their own flesh rather than trusting in the complete righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you've heard it. I'm an honest guy. That's a part of that everything. I go to church. I try real hard. I can, I can get there. Later in the chapter, we'll get that to that next week probably. The, the, he, he mentions those who glory in their shame. That's verse 19 the rubbish of their own works, or they're finding, they're glorying in that, rejoicing in their works. He talks about those who are, are, whose gods are their stomachs. It stands in contrast to worshiping by the Spirit of God. And so rather than read this passage and think that we're okay because we're not Judaizers and that circumcision is not even something we talk about anymore, we are forced to ask the question, if our attitude and our priorities and our way of thinking makes us behave like dogs around the cross as we put our confidence in works that only serve to undermine the works of Jesus Christ. The trick is, the difficult part is that these are good works. These are good things that, that, that we're doing there's a story of, of John Knox. John Knox was an was a English reformer. 
You want to read about him? Very interesting, big, strong man, worked on the galley, slave ship, was very defiant to his persecutors because he trusted in his Lord very, very powerfully, known for his preaching. While John Knox was on his deathbed, and he, while he was there, he was confessing to his friend that in the last hours, the devil had been attacking him more fiercely than, than ever before. In those last hours of his life, the devil wanted to make an end at me at once, he said. And John Knox said, the cunning serpent has labored to persuade me that I have merited heaven and eternal blessedness by the faithful discharge of my ministry. He recognized the attack was trying to convince the man that he was a good preacher. And Knox was not fooled by this, what he called a fiery dart. He said, response, not at all. Everything I have received by grace. And it's true. The Lord has given us many covenant blessings, as he did to the Jews in Paul's days. You can read about that in Romans 9. He gives a big list of all the blessings that God poured on. But, but the key is that all these blessings are only meant to point us to Christ. And piety is removing our trust in all those things. And then he makes us ask, what are we depending on as we think about eternal life? What is our guarantee that we'll get there? How do we console ourselves that we'll be okay? We will re participate in the resurrection from the dead. Do you feel superior to the wicked sinners around you? People who promote abortion, euthanasia? As if God will pay more attention to you because you can see more clearly? And the Holy Spirit tells us in Philippians 3, verse 8, 18, that this where he, he says, it's so sad. It's so sad when people would rather cling to rubbish, to garbage, because they made it, than confess their utter and complete dependence on Jesus Christ for everything. It's like rather clinging to the, the little rags that, that you had, that, that you earned by your merits and, and rejecting the beautiful white robes of righteousness that Jesus Christ gives to us. It's so sad. It's so unnecessary. Why would anyone dare to reject the, the righteousness of Christ and cling to garbage that can't help them instead. The Holy Spirit in our hearts makes us want to abandon the proud independence lineup that doesn't lead to, to heaven. To seek our salvation outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. 
He urges us to take our, our heads out of, out of the garbage can of good works. You can imagine all those people with their, their feet hanging out of the garbage can as they're looking to, to find something that might help them get into heaven. And, and he calls, he says, not there, but in Christ. He's one who's done everything for you. Rejoicing in the Lord, we want to gain that righteousness of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit, he contrasts mutilation or the cutting off of flesh, concision, with circumcision. As one might distinguish between hypocrisy and sincerity. Or between superficial good deeds and a transformed heart that, that loves to serve the Lord. That's the contrast. He says followers of Jesus Christ aren't, aren't misled by taking pride in, in the external rites and cuttings that they've done. No, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, putting no confidence in the flesh. That's verse 3. That's the contrast. The church can claim to be the circumcision because the New Testament church is the new covenant people that confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and complete Savior. In the new covenant, the cutting rite of circumcision has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And yet its essence and its meaning continues to remain valid in water baptism. And now we see that God circumcises our hearts. This was in the display text as you walked in today, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. You could also look at Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, Romans 2, verse 28. The Lord cuts away the pride and the rebellion and the arrogant confidence in our hearts. That's the circumcision of the new covenant, cutting of the pride from our hearts so that we glory in Christ, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says in the New Covenant, piety consists of sharing in Christ's suffering and becoming like him in his death. As Christ was completely submissive and dependent on God when he was there on the cross, when he emptied himself, committed his spirit into the hands of his Father. So for us today, true circumcision, true piety consists of becoming like Christ in his death, in lowliness, in independence. Christ's righteousness is granted to everyone who throws himself, throws herself on the mercy of God and his promises. The apostle recognized the unworthiness of his own works when he came to see that true gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. It, it was a light, literally, a bright light, but it exposed what he needed. And so the apostle can speak in a very personal way about his relationship to Jesus Christ. He describes the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord, verse Eight, my Lord. He associates gaining Christ, in verse 8, with knowing Christ. 
The more we know of Christ, the more we, we know who he is also by experience in our lives, the more we can see that he has obtained everything for our gain. We can see his righteousness. We can see him offering that righteousness to us and calling us to him. And the gospel message for Judaizers, for everyone, all times and places, is that Jesus Christ not only paid for our sins on the cross, but he also grants us righteousness from God. Philippians 3, the Spirit teaches that we can make this righteousness our own through faith in Christ. And then verse 9, he says it's a righteousness that depends on faith. Knowing Christ is having faith in him completely. And that faith in him completely means removing a lot of the, the rubbish that we may have been depending on for our salvation and saying, not me, but him. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory, Psalm 115, that we sang. Faith in Jesus Christ means letting ourselves fall into the cloak of Christ's righteousness which our Heavenly Father wraps around us. It's complete and total dependence on Him. If you make a comparison, if trying to earn your own salvation, to earn your way into heaven is like climbing a tree, the tree of your own good works, while resting on God's faithfulness is like letting go of the branch of your own works and falling into the arms of someone who can catch you and carry you in a different direction to the right destination. Those who trust in God, rely on his gracious promises, can be found in Christ, says Paul in verse 9. To be found in Christ means to be a part of his body, a part of his work, so closely united to him by true faith that, that when anyone is out looking for Jesus Christ, they will also find you as a part of his body, praising him and speaking of him and, and following him with joy. The shame of our defiled works has passed away. We don't glory in them. We are glorying, glor glorying in Christ. We're made beautiful with the robes of his righteousness, looking forward to sharing in the power of his resurrection and attaining resurrection from the dead. We are buried with him into death. We are raised with him into new life. Found in Christ, we know that we share in his sufferings, we become like him in his death, which is completely dependent on the Father. We also know that through him, we may attain the resurrection from the dead, the long-term goal. And when Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, he's not saying that he's unsure about his resurrection after he dies but rather he doesn't know how he will die. Whatever, whatever will happen to me, it is through Christ that I will attain the resurrection of the dead. All who are found in Christ now can know that when the time comes, by any means, by any way that God may present as the cause of our death, 
we can be sure that we will attain the resurrection from the dead because Christ obtained it for us. Rubbish can't grant eternal life. Everything is lost compared to the surpassing greatness, value of knowing Christ Jesus. And so found in Christ, wrapped in his righteousness, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead with confidence. We're not there yet, as we'll see more next week. The, the, the following verses talk about it. But our eyes are focused not on earthly things, but on heavenly, the heavenly prize that we have gained in Christ. May he sustain us in our journey. Amen.